Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I thought this is this is cool uh, because Gang of Four, for me, was about being thrilling, alive, and dangerous. You know. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Live Through That, the podcast where influential artists of the 80s and 90s talk to us about a pivotal moment in their lives. I'm your host, Mike Hipple, and we're continuing a month of stories from artists that are going to be performing at the Cruel World Festival in Pasadena on May 20th. This week, we're thrilled to have John King on the podcast, the singer and songwriter of the band Gang of Four. Gang of Four were one of the most influential of the post-punk bands. Their music has been cited by artists like R.E.M., the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Nirvana as major influences. More recently, you can hear echoes of their sound in bands like Franz Ferdinand, Block Party, and so many others. Today, he shares with us a tale of how a stroke of luck and smarts changed the course of his life. I think the pivotal moment in my life when I thought about doing something along these lines or getting involved in in the creative work was when I was 11. Uh, I had um, my background was I came from a fairly hard up uh, working class family. My dad was an electrician who left school at uh, 13. And uh, we we didn't have a really a book in the house. And we didn't have a record player. And um, I got uh, the equivalent of a scholarship to a posh English public school, i.e. a private school, uh, where there was a, a scheme for fees to be paid by um, uh, the local authority. The local council paid my fees to the school. Uh, and I went there, which was you know, quite a culture change because everyone was pretty um, well-heeled and, and I wasn't. Um, and um, but I went to for the first time to a really well equipped art department, and um, I went actually up to that school with Kevin Lysett, who became the guitarist of the Mekons. He, he and I were at um, uh, primary school together. And when I went there in the art department, they had a record player that was on the whole time, which is the first time I'd heard uh, people playing music on a record player, and um, 
the um, the music that they played was not like the music that you heard on the then very conservative uh, middle of the road um, radio stations in in Britain, that w- which were very uh, oriented towards older people. There wasn't there wasn't really a pop or rock music at all on the radio then, and so I was suddenly um, hearing this strange stuff. And the strangest of the strange stuff that I heard was Bob Dylan, uh, who I'd never heard a peep of. I hadn't even heard his name. And they were playing Highway 61 Revisited uh, over and over again. Not not just that individual track, the album Highway 61 Revisited. And um, I was, it was like being sort of uh, imaginatively hit in the face by something. I... Um, I was just, just uh, as if I was hypnotised by it. I am. Um, I I couldn't believe that this type of music existed or this type of art existed, and uh, it was incredibly thrilling. And um, and you knew by listening to him singing, or I I felt I knew that he was against all the squares and the straights and the fascists and the, all these other things that I sort of hadn't really thought much about, but knew I didn't like, and that there was something else there, uh, something that was rich and powerful and thrilling and um, and good. And uh, that, I, I really think that that sort of turned me towards wanting to do that sort of thing um, I'm not exactly sure. I wasn't exactly sure then what that thought, sort of thing was, but I knew what it certainly was not, and I and um, it was uh, it was incredible to me that that had happened. King attended the Seven Oaks School, one of the oldest schools in Britain dating back to the 1400s. It must have been an exceptional time period for the kids in the art and music classes at his school, as his class included former Gang of Four member Andy Gill, as well as future members of the Mekons, as well as filmmaker Paul Greengrass. Yeah, it was it was half boarding school and half um, a day board. I went to school six days a week, and we wore you know, school uniforms. I don't know how my father... Um, afforded it because you know we were not at all well off um you know we didn't have any heating in our house and um things like that we didn't have any hot water and um it was um yes it was it was half bought it was a bit like um harry potter really (laughs) and uh it was uh it was incredibly um fiercely uh, competitive and and uh, academic, but in the art department, I was there with Kevin Lysett, and uh, the by the time I was um, fifteen, the art department people were me. Kevin Lysett was the guitarist of the Mekons. In the year below me was Andy Gill, uh, obviously my partner, songwriting partner in Gang of Four. Uh, Tom Greenhouge, guitarist of the Mekons. Mark White. Um, Paul Greengrass, the director of the Corns- Born Conspiracy films, was was in my class, and Adam Curtis, the documentary filmmaker. So we, so it was quite a, a group of um, of uh, people all 
sort of you know sharing their thoughts and ideas and their uh, competitiveness with each other. It was quite um, it was quite surprising, really. It was more surprising after the event than at the time. I mean, I think we were we were we were there, and um, I, I think so. We just all shared a sort of desire to sort of do something that mattered. I mean, I don't know. I I think probably all um, teenagers want to do that, but it was lucky enough to be with a bunch of other people who I think sort of steered us all on in some uh, in some way. And it was a very liberal um, class run, actually, by Mark White of the Mekons, father, who was an inspirational man who asked us, who encouraged us all to, to think analytically and, and critically about the... Um, received um, ideology and received ideas both about art and about um, society and politics and things it was it was uh, pretty I was very lucky um, my two brothers went to a really lousy terrible school by contrast because they weren't academic like me um, I, I was very very lucky so how did one get into such a school um, because at the age of 11 there was a thing it's, I think it's quite discredited now but there was a thing called the eleven plus, which was an which was an basically an IQ test. So, you know, I just re- vaguely remember, you know, all the kids in my primary school, which is the age from five to eleven, going into a great big hall and sitting down and being presented with this uh, uh, paper for which we hadn't been prepared at all. And it was things like, you know, you'd have a circle and a triangle and a square, and then they'd ask you what the next symbol was, you know, <laughs> that that kind of thing, and. Um, uh, it, and there were, as a result of this test, um, a certain number of boys were given a free place at this school, which was relatively close to where I lived. So I got the bus in and out every day. But it was just, it was, it was like, um, you know, uh, so quite apart from the, um, obviously, Bob Dylan and Highway 61 revisited at that school, it was going to a place like that, which was sort of so um, uh, amazing for someone of my background. I mean, um, like I say, my, my father, I don't think he'd ever read a book. I mean, I, I don't think I ever saw him. I'm not, I was never sure whether he could actually read, um, but I think he could. Coming from such a working class background, how did his parents feel about him going into the arts? I think my my father certainly he he said to me the one thing he didn't want me to do was to work with my hands, he'd you know it was uh, it was a hard life for him. I mean he died at the age of forty eight uh, of colon cancer, which I think used to be thought of as a working class disease, but based on diet because we ate such bad food. Um, but when I came to my um, making decisions about further education, which is going to university, like 17, 18. He was quite negative about it to start with because he didn't see the point of it. Um, I think he would have, at the time, would have preferred I did something that had more of an applied um, uh, function to it. I, I went to study fine art, for example, and I think he would have probably preferred if I'd done it at all to have done something like graphic design. You know, or or industrial design, or something like that. But um, but that said, you know, uh, I think he just wanted me to not have the life that he'd had, um, uh, which was a pretty hard one. 
Gang of Four broke up in 1983, but reformed in the early 90s to release two more albums, Mall in 1991 and Shrinkwrapped in 95. 2011 brought another classic album into their catalog, The Well-Received Content. After a tour supporting that record, guitarists Andy Gale and John had a disagreement about the band's direction. Well, I didn't leave the band in 2011-2012. What actually happened was that Andy and I fell out about what we did or didn't want to do. And we had, uh, I've, I kept very quiet about all of this, but it, but it, he'd, he uh, widely said interview after interview that I had left the band and that we'd had a discussion about it and he decided to carry on, which is not the case at all. Uh, we had a r- rather ugly um, uh, falling out about the fact that he had set up a company in the band name, uh, which I didn't know about, and he controlled the bank account and locked me out of the bank account. And kept all the money. So I said I wanted the band to stop altogether. I didn't want, uh, I didn't, we were, because we were a 50 50 setup, you know, blocking corporation, I, 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 um, I, I absolutely did not leave the band. What I absolutely said was, I don't want the band to carry on. And, and he said, well, I'm going to carry on with, well, I didn't have a conversation with him. Our only contact was through lawyers. So I never had a conversation with him about whether I was or wasn't in the band. I was actually, uh, his, um, the problem was he's was, an as you probably know, he was an alcoholic. And I didn't like working with someone who was so drunk so much of the time. And it was very difficult for me. I didn't like that. And um, so I, um, uh, I, I wanted it to, to stop. Um, and um, he he. he as I say, we didn't have a conversation about it. He, he, after we had had an exchange of a, a lot of uh, legal letters, in the end, it came down to the fact that because we were a 50-50 thing, uh, he had as much right to use the name as I did. And, and he did. And he had this, uh, this uh, pickup band for some years. And uh, in fact, he even put out three albums under the name, I, which I couldn't stop, although I, I did do as much as I could to uh, object to this. But um, so, no, that in terms of pivotal moments, that wasn't a pivotal moment. That was just, uh, it was very depressing um, and, um, uh, and it was unhappy. But on the other hand, I did not want to work with him anymore because, you know, he was uh, so, so um, uh, messed up by the, the drink. In 2021, they released a box set of their music, 77 to 81. How was it revisiting those classic works? It was, uh, it was very, it was, it was fantastic, really. I, um, uh, I, first of all, of course, I had to listen to what we'd done. And like I think most creative people, I don't really like listening to my own work at all. Um, I hate it if I go around someone's house or out and they're playing my music. I don't really like listening to it very much, but I did like listening to it as a result of the um, of this uh, box set uh, because I had to have it remastered. Uh, it was remastered at Abbey Road Studios where we'd recorded uh, Solid Gold, um, and um, it was um, we got the original quarter inch uh, mixes from the original sessions. The actual twenty four inch uh, two inch tapes, the twenty four track things, had been destroyed. There was a big fire 
um, at uh, the storage facility, but we had the quarter inches. So it's remastered from the quarter inch onto beautiful 180 gram uh, virgin vinyl. And uh, again, I don't know if you've heard it, but it sounds absolutely fabulous. And um, the other thing was, uh, obviously, as you know, I, I wrote all the lyrics or you know, 90% of the lyrics. And um, uh, I thought it would be a good thing to have for the first time in the book that came with it, the words that I had composed. And so I, being a bit lazy or being extremely lazy, I, uh, I thought I could just go on to the interwebnet thing and go to many of these sites, which have got, you know, lyrics.com or whatever, and just cut and paste the lyrics into the book, but found that the, the lyrics that are posted online are, are I, don't, I don't know whether they've been done by AI or machine learning or someone who's not interested, but they, they, they weren't at all the lyrics, not at all, but they were very uh, unlike the lyrics I'd written. And um, I used to spend a lot of, you know, well, I spent an incredible amount of time honing the words to those songs. And uh, I then um, ha listened to the songs on the records to remind me of the uh, what I'd written. And I even found my original uh, notebooks where I'd written like At Home is a Tourist and Natural's Not In It and, uh, and songs like that. And I found my original longhand uh, notes for those songs which I put in the book. And then then we thought it'd be nice to have, uh, well, I thought it'd be nice to have a knowledge nugget uh, next to each one. Like, um, uh, the, for example, there's a song called In the Ditch on Solid Gold, which was inspired by the book that was sent to every single household in Britain in 1980, I think it was, something like that. There was a book thing called Protect and Survive. And it was, we were then under extreme um, threat of nuclear war. And it was very, uh, very, very dangerous and stressful time. It quite reminiscent of what we're at now, but much more extreme. There was definitely a sense that there was going to be a war. So much so that every household in Britain was sent a book, which uh, each city and town had to come up with a, a plan to say what would happen if a bomb dropped in the middle of their place. So we had London and the bomb, Leeds and the bomb, you know, Sheffield and the bomb. So Leeds and the bomb, where I lived at the time, you know, would say the epicenter of the bomb would destroy three, you know, miles from the centre. Everything would melt. Then there'd be the radiation zone uh, where everyone would die of radiation sickness. And then there'd be the bit outside, which would basically everyone would then starve to death. And it had all these tips of what to do um, when the bomb dropped, like um, when we were told that the Russians, the Soviets were launching uh, their missiles, uh, we were supposed to get under a table, whitewash the windows, get under a table and fill, if we had time, black bin liner bags with clothes to sort of absorb some of the radiation, <laughs> and, uh, which is cool. actually really funny. And um, so in the ditch, a lot of the lyrics from that come from that um from that booklet, uh, 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 or if you were outside, it's called in the ditch. You were supposed to dive into a ditch. If you saw if you saw a mushroom cloud, you should dive down and lie down in the ditch, and uh, which is quite hilarious in a dark in a dark way.
there was that sort of thing. So there's a knowledge nugget uh, that was involved there. And then, then there was a, a little anecdote. And we thought it would be nice to get anecdotes from people who were around at the time or who we were friends with. So uh, Hugo, who knows everybody uh, in, a, in the US, and he's, he's, he lives in, a, in a Massachusetts. So he got in touch with people like Michael Stipe, you know, and, and, and uh, whatever, um, uh, Pylon and, and, you know, Peter Hook and all that kind of stuff, and Lowell from The Cure and, and whatever. And um, he got, and said, you know, do you want to sort of give us a hundred words about stuff? And it was amazing. You know, Flea would wrote a bit for us and every, and we had some amazing, uh, amazing um, contributions uh, about from people who had played with us at the time. I mean, um, uh, it's, uh, it, and that, that was, that was really interesting. So every page had lyrics, a sort of a, something about what it was like at the time. Um, like, um, when I wrote, um, uh, what's that song? End, um, ether, pulled up with the ether. At the very end, there's a line that goes, um, there may be oil under rock hall, uh, I, I, which is, uh, Americans particularly find that um, mystifying. Um, but at, uh, my little knowledge nugget there was that the, the United Kingdom had landed uh, a Royal Marine Commando onto this rock in the middle of the Atlantic, which is about the size of a small apartment building covered in guano and claimed it as British territory. It was the last act of British imperialism in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, declared it to be British territory. And um, I uh, uh, thought this was hilariously funny. And the guy had to sit on this guano stained rock for, I can't remember, like 60 days and then claimed it as British. And the Irish and the Icelandic uh, uh, government and uh, I think Denmark then, and the, even now uh, object to this uh, annexation of this rock because of course there is likely to be oil <laughs> surrounding it. So it was a kind of, so those things interested me putting it back together again because it made me look at why why I'd written those words and, um, and uh, what it was all about. And um, some of them were quite Nostradamus-like, really, <laughs> the songs. Uh, I mean, like that song, Guns Before Butter. I mean, it's like Putin's invasion of Ukraine, you know. Uh, so I, I, I found it very thrilling. In support of the box set, Gang of Four enlisted guitarist David Pajo and embarked on a U.S. tour that reinvigorated the band. Well, um, David Pajo was... Meeting David Paho and working with David Paho is, is an incredible revelation uh, last year. I mean, obviously, I was uh, notwithstanding, you know, the fact that that uh, it was had been really difficult working with Andy and I, uh, or impossible to work with him. He and I were had been friends from the age of fourteen or fifteen, and worked together for many years. You know, I mean, obviously, we had a some difficult times and and had completely fallen out. By the end, we didn't speak, hadn't spoken to each other for, um, I don't know, the eight years before he died. Or, um, so it's, it's, we, but I, and I was, um, the main thing was, I loved his guitar playing, you know, obviously, like everybody else, what a fantastic, brilliant, uh, one off talent there. And I was, I was thinking, well, we can't play without 
being able to do something that sort of honours all of that and yet also is not like, as you just said, karaoke. You don't want to do karaoke. You want to do something that's got a threat to it, that's got intention to it, that's got authenticity to it. And um, David's name came up and I thought, wow, man, because I'm a big fan of, I was a big fan of his work already. You know, I liked what, what he'd done, you know, and uh, I was, uh, I was pretty amazed. And when we had our first sort of tryout with him, he had really, really nailed uh, both getting it and his particular sound, but then having Pachoism, you know, with it. And it became, the music sort of just became thrilling and alive and, uh, and dangerous. Uh, and I thought this is this is cool uh, because Gang of Four for me was about being thrilling, alive, and dangerous. You know, I, I still love it. You know, when you own the stage and you come forward as a band, people sometimes will back away from us. And uh, so David was sensational. And having done that uh, tour last year of the US, which was really pr- very successful, uh, we then. Um, uh so what david and i are are now starting to do and we're going to start quite quite soon um is uh, writing together and see we'll see how it how it works out thank you john for taking the time to share your story gang of four will be continuing to tour in europe this year and fingers crossed we'll hear some new music as well I also want to thank the band Joop Joop for creating our brand new theme song. You can find out more about their music at joopjoopmusic.com. And if you have a story about one of the bands performing at Cruel World, maybe they were one of your first concerts or their song was your prom theme song, anything, send us a voice memo at mhipple at gmail.com. I'd love to do a bonus episode featuring some of these stories. And a friendly reminder that you can also buy my book on 80s musicians and where they are today, 80s Redux, and its sequel on 90s artists, Live Through That, wherever you buy your books. If you like this show, please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. We'll have some more stories next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 